This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would please open your Bibles to Numbers 17, I mean Numbers uh, 13, Numbers 13. Uh, We're going to be completing or continuing our discussion of Israel's journey through the wilderness. As you recall, the book of Numbers records Israel's journey from their slavery in Egypt to the point where they're ready to possess and enter the promised land of Canaan. This narrative all takes place geographically on the Sinai Peninsula, which we're going to take a look at here in a moment. As a matter of fact, the, the, the name of the book, the numbers, the Hebrew name, means in the wilderness, and this entire narrative takes place in the wilderness. It covers about a 40-year period in the history of Israel from about 1446, uh, the time of the Exodus when they left Egypt, uh, to the invasion of Canaan, in 1406. So it's a 40-year period, and it's really a remarkable saga, largely a record of Israel's failures. It's their failures to trust and obey God despite the many miracles that he has performed on their behalf. They left Egypt in 1406. They spent about a year camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. God met them at the Mount of at the foot of Mount Sinai. God met them at the Mount at the foot of the Mount Sinai, made a conditional covenant with them gave them his law, and the conditions were really simple. If you obey me, then you will be my people, and I will be your God. And Israel promised, we will obey you and we'll follow you. God says, I will be with you, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bring you into the promised land of Canaan. So the first 10 chapters of Numbers recounts they're still really at the foot of the mountain, and God organizes them for the travel gets the Levites arranged, gets their organizational structure. They're going to be traveling through the wilderness. There's about two and a half million people. So if you have two and a half million people walking through a desert, you better have them organized or there's going to be some bad outcomes. So by Numbers 13, Israel has journeyed to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern edge of the promised land of Canaan. Now They've now been on the road or at Mount Sinai for about two years. So they're about two years after the Exodus. Rob is going to show you a, a map of their route uh, that they took from Egypt to uh, the Promised Land, and you'll notice that Mount Sinai, where they met God, is at the really southern end of this triangle. The Sinai Peninsula really is a triangle, and Mount uh, 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 Sinai is at the bottom of that, and that's where they camped about 11 and a half months. They were there camped at the foot of the mountain to meet God, and then they traveled north to the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh Barnea, which is in the wilderness of Zin, which is kind of in the middle of that triangle toward the top end. It's the southern edge of the land of Canaan, and it's the site of Israel's greatest failure of faith and their greatest rebellion against God. Unfortunately, this rebellion is not remarkable. It's not an isolated incident at all. It's merely the climax in a long sequence of spiritual failure on the part of the nation of Israel. However, this refusal to trust and obey God was climactic in the sense that it proved to be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. This was the event where they told God again, 
it would be better that we had died in the wilderness than go into Canaan. And at this moment, God said, have it your way. You want to die in the wilderness? You will wander in the wilderness for another 38 years, so 40 years total, until every single male of your nation, 20 years old and upward, has died in the wilderness. You want it, you got it. So chapter 13, where we're going to explore today, Israel's poised into the land of Canaan. Let's pick up the narrative at chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. And then there's an entire list of the names per tribe. Jump to verse 17. When Moses sent them, this 12 spies, to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like. And whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? Verse 20, how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Here's the principle. The God of the Bible is a full disclosure God. He tells people up front what they can expect when they follow him. The God of the Bible is a, quote, full disclosure, unquote, God. He tells people up front what they can expect when they follow him. Now, this narrative in Numbers is slightly different than Moses' repetition of this in Deuteronomy chapter 1. In Deuteronomy 1, the record states that the people of Israel had asked Moses to send out spies. They had requested this, and he had agreed to send out spies. In Numbers, the record shows that God commanded Moses to send out the spies. Now, in reality, most likely the people had requested Moses to send out spies or a scouting expedition, a recon patrol, if you will, out of fear because they had heard some things about this land. God consented to the people's request and ordered Moses to send out the 12 spies to collect intelligence on the land and the people of the land before they made their invasion. Now, the word spy out here, if you will, means a careful and thorough examination of the situation, which makes sense. If you're going to invade a country, it's a good idea to have accurate information on where you're going and why you're going, etc., so God was going to ensure that Israel had eyewitness accounts from members of their own nation state of the land and the people before they invaded it. Here's the bottom line. Regardless of who made the request, the spies were sent out because God intended Israel, the nation, to understand at least two things. There were two significant lessons God wanted to convey to the nation based on what the spies said. One, the promised land of Canaan was really as good as God had said. It really was a land flowing with milk and honey, and the spies were going to scout it out, bring a report back, and verify that this prize was worth fighting for. If you're going to go to war, and you're going to embark on a campaign to invade and conquer a country because God's going to give it to you, you need to know that the prize is worth the price. And God was going to demonstrate that based on eyewitness reports. Number two, the conquest of this land was humanly impossible. 
Israel could not conquer this land in their own strength. God did not want the Israelite nation to be surprised when they encountered very experienced armies who were not going to give up their homelands without a serious fight. God doesn't have any fine print in his agreements with us, does he? When God says, if you're going to follow me, here are the terms and conditions up front. God is a transparent God. We don't understand everything. Obviously, he's infinite and we're not. But when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't say, follow me, and it's a mystery where I'm going to take you. He tells you up front, right? He told his disciples for three and a half years, when you follow me, here's what that means. And I appreciate so much the fact that we serve a God who is a full disclosure God. He discloses all the terms and conditions up front, and he wanted Israel to understand that Canaan, if it was to be conquered, it was going to be God that did the conquest and not the nation of Israel because they didn't have the power to get it done. So the report of the spies was literally going to be a test of Israel's faith in God's promise. And as we know, they failed that test. So Moses specifically instructs the spies to scout the entire land. He gives them extensive instructions. Their route covered the land literally from south to north and back again. Rob is going to show you a map of their route and remember, they're camped at Kadesh Barnea, which is the upper end of the Sinai Triangle, the southern end of the land of Canaan, the southern end of the land of Israel. They're literally below the southernmost border, and they're going to travel all the way to the top of the land of Israel, and they're going to follow the mountain hill country. There's a spine, a mountain spine that literally runs right from top of Israel all the way to the bottom, and they're literally going to follow. That's called the hill country and they follow that mountain spine all the way from the top and back. And Moses specifically gave the spies a significant number of information they needed to collect. He wanted information about the people of the land, and he wanted information about the land himself. He said, was the land uh, densely populated, lightly populated? Were there warriors in the land? Were there farmers? What were the people like? Where were the cities located? Were they fortified? Were they open camps? He wanted to know, how productive is the land? Is this a land you can grow crops on? What kind of crops can you grow? Is there nut trees? Is there fruit trees that you can use for food? Is there trees we can use to build houses or for fuel? Moses literally wanted all the facts available. And the spies travel north along that ridge route. We have no idea how they got away with this. I've read a number of commentaries that said maybe they posed as traders or traveling merchants. And that's their disguise, if you will, to get them into the land without being targeted as Israelites. Because once they understand that they're from the nation of Israel, the whole nation, the whole Canaan territory is aware that Israel came out of Egypt by supernatural means. I mean, they know, we know that from Joshua's account, that the entire region was terrified of the Israelites. So we know they had to go in under some kind of disguise to get in and travel through the country. When you look at the map, it's about 150 miles plus or minus from Kadesh Barnea to the top, the northernmost region of the land of Canaan near the, the uh, region which ultimately turns out to be the tribal territory of Dan, which is right near uh, Damascus. Actually, the text indicates if you look at some of these Hebrew names that they actually traveled north of Damascus. So it was quite a long route, about 300 miles round trip. They did it in 40 days, about six weeks. So they're probably trekking 10, 12, 13 miles per day, every day. And they came back, 
and they reported to the entire nation in a public forum. It says they were sent out at the time of the first ripe grapes. Now, in Palestine, that's late July, probably, or early August. So that's when they left, and they were gone about six weeks. And they come back in verse 27. Let's pick up the narrative in Scripture, and it says, Thus they, the, ten, the twelve spies, told Moses and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, underline that word, the people who live in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Verse 29, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men, it's talking about the ten spies, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone, in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the sons of Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Here's the principle. Facts, in quotation marks, without faith in God produces fear. Faith in God creates confidence regardless of the, quote, facts, unquote. Let me repeat that. Quote, facts without faith in God produces fear. Faith in God creates confidence regardless of the, quote, facts, unquote. Now, the facts that the spies reported were, in, were accurate. The land was fruitful. True. True. The cities were fortified, also true. The population was a mixture of multiple people groups and tribes when they talk about the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. Those are all tribal groups living within the territory that was to become the nation of Israel. So each one of these tribes had carved out a specific spot. The Canaanites were along the seashore. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites were along the the hill country, right in the middle of the land, that hill country, and the Amalekites were down south in the Negev. So all of these tribes, these tribal groups, had carved out a chunk of territory because this was very, very productive land. So the land was a mixture of, of people groups and tribes, etc. And they said the land is incredibly productive. And to prove it, they brought back, this is hard to believe, a single cluster of grapes, that was so large, it took two men to carry it on a pole. So they had two men, they put a pole between them, they draped the cluster of grapes over the pole. I have no idea how big a cluster of grapes like that would be. It'd have to be, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds of grapes if it takes two people to carry it between a pole. But it gives you an idea of the incredible agricultural productivity of this land. This really was, when God says it's a land flowing with milk and honey, it really was agriculturally incredibly productive. After they reported all that, then they spoke these very fateful words. Nevertheless, 
despite the fact that the land is exceedingly good, just like God promised, what they said is, this land is already taken. There are other tribes everywhere. There are no vacancies in this land. This land is filled up with people. Now, they're beginning to veer way into fear, and Caleb interrupts them. And he hears their fear, and he interrupts them with a statement of faith. And he strongly encourages the entire nation. Remember, this is a public forum now. The entire nation's gathered around him to go in and possess the land because they will surely overcome their enemies. And the ten spies that are with him insist that they cannot overcome these people of the land because all of them are men of great size. In other words, they're giants. They're very, very, very big. As a matter of fact, they say they are so big that we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So what they're obviously living by is fear, not faith. And they're living in a world of exaggeration. If they see themselves as grasshoppers relative to the people of the land, it's pretty clear that they don't believe they have the capacity to conquer this land. I want you to notice something. Everything this 10 spies said in verse 31 and 33 is not factual. It's their interpretation of the facts. It's the conclusions they're drawing as a result of the facts. Verse 31 to 33 are interpretation, they're not factual. It was not the job of the 10 spies to come back and tell Moses if Israel could conquer the Canaanites. That wasn't their job. Their job was to come and bring a report back as to what the land was like, not tell Moses whether they thought they could conquer or not. God himself had already promised the nation, I'm going to give you this land. The ten spies were discouraged because they saw the facts without any faith in God. Joshua and Caleb saw the same facts, but they had courage because they had faith in God's promises and power. The contrast here is really remarkable. The ten spies see only giants. Joshua and Caleb see only God. The ten spies walk by physical sight. Joshua and Caleb walk by spiritual sight, which is called faith. The ten spies focus on the obstacles. Joshua and Caleb focus on the opportunities. It's an old story of a shoe salesman. He's sent to a remote part of a remote country. Everyone in this country is barefooted. So he wires the company headquarters and says, no prospect for shoe sales here. People don't wear shoes. Later on, the same company sends another shoe salesman to the same territory. He wires the company back. Great potential. People don't wear shoes here. Same facts. <laughs> Nobody wears shoes. Completely different conclusion. Why? What you see outside you is based on what is inside you. What you see reveals more about you than it does about what is outside you. For example, how many of you have heard the glass is half full? My question is very simple. Half full of what? A glass half full is mathematically is the same as a glass half empty. In both cases, it's half water 
and half air, right? So do you focus on the water or do you focus on the air? 50% chance of rain means what? 50% chance of sun. Do you focus on the sun or do you focus on the rain? I guess it depends on what you want. Now, we don't get a lot of rain here, so when they say a 50% chance of rain, we're hoping for rain. On the other hand, if you've just encountered a deluge and your, your, your county is flooded, you're probably saying, I'm really hoping for some sun. So the 50% chance depends on what you want to see at that point. If you're filled with God, then you will see your circumstances from his point of view. If you are not filled with God, then you will see circumstances from your point of view. The ten spies focused on the giants, and the giants got bigger and God got smaller. Joshua and Caleb focused on God, so God got bigger and the giants got smaller. It depends on the lens. I'm wearing glasses, so I've been looking through lenses for decades. The lens you look at your problems through, are they the lens of faith from God, faith in God, or are they a human lens from the lens of the culture? When you look at any problem we have through the lens of God's infinite power and promises, the problem shrinks relative to the size of God. When you look at God through the lens of your problems, then your God gets smaller and the problem gets larger. You get a diagnosis of cancer. If you look at cancer through the lens of God's power and promises, you understand, yes, it's a problem. The problem doesn't disappear, but it's not a problem for the God you serve and the God who loves you, is it? Because an infinite God has no problems, and you are his child. He loves you. He demonstrated that at the cross. So anytime we look at our circumstances, we always should ask ourselves, what lens am I viewing this through? And when someone says, my life is horrible, terrible, awful. It's just rotten. Nothing is going well. I can tell you the lens they're looking at the problem through. It's not the lens of faith. It doesn't mean looking through life through the lens of faith doesn't mean the problem goes away. We're not talking magical thinking. It means that the way you're looking at it is through God's eyes instead of your own eyes. Here's a question for you. Are you a big godder or a small godder? Is your God big or is your God small? You want some perspective? Psalm 8.3 says, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, that's the universe, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? If you serve the big G God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, then giants become a small problem. If you serve a little g God, if your God is limited by human abilities, then your problems become very, very big and everything is a giant. This generation of Israelites were small godders. Their God was small. They felt that they were unable to conquer the land. And they were right. Victory over the Canaanites was impossible in their own strength. 
So Israel's great sin here is rejecting God's promise of supernatural power to give them the victory. They flat refuse to believe God. Do you know what refusing to believe God is called? You are calling him a liar. When God says something, you say, I don't believe it. You're saying, God, you're a liar. That's what they were doing. You know, the reality is we all have, quote, giants in our lives. We all have giants in our lives. They could be bad habits. They could be addictions. They could be recurring sins. They could be chronic physical pain. We could have broken relationships. There's a lot of giants in our lives. There's lots of things that we feel that we don't have the capacity to cope with. The issue is not the presence of giants in our lives. We all have giants. The issue is, what do we believe about God? Our God. Does the God we serve have infinite capabilities, number one? Does he have the power to deal with the giants in our lives? And number two, does he love us? Does he care enough to get involved with the giants that oppress us, beat us down, and cause us to want to give up? The reality is, since God is infinitely power and completely loving, he is able and willing to deal with the giants in the lives of his children. But he's going to do that in his time and his way. Correct? According to his purposes. Our job is to trust him and follow him. And the ten spies came back from the land, and what essentially they said is, we can't conquer them, so the land is no good. They gave a bad report. This is called sour grapes. You, you know the Aesop's fable. The fox wants the grapes. The grapes are in a tree. The fox jumps and jumps and jumps, can't get the grapes, and says, ah, they were sour anyway. Since I can't have it, they're no good. It says that the ten spies told the nation, this land devours its inhabitants. What they meant is, the land is so good, it's so productive, it's so agriculturally rich that people fight and kill each other trying to possess this land and have been fighting and killing each other for centuries because they want the land. So therefore, the land is so good that it's bad. Since we don't believe we can conquer this land, it's not worth conquering. Bad land. Besides, if we do conquer it, someone's going to come along and try and take it away from us. It's utterly intriguing to me and heartbreaking that God gifts them with an exceeding good land, and they come back and they say, it is a very, very good land. And now they're telling God that his land is trash. It's like someone giving you a Christmas present or getting a Christmas present. Someone gets a Christmas present, and they throw it in the trash can right in front of the person that gave it to them. They say that gift is trash, and they throw it away right in front of the person that gave it to them. That's what Israel's doing to God. He brought them out of the land of Egypt with supernatural signs and wonders. He's brought them to the Red Sea. He's given them manna. He's given them quail. He's brought water from the rock. He's done all these miracles, and they're on the edge of the land. They're giving the, he's ready to give them the gift, and they say, it's trash. What an insult. 14 verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. 
and the people wept that night. You know, sidebar, every time I read this, I don't know whether to laugh, cry, you want to slap them silly, you go, what about your whiners? I mean, I'm just giving you my emotional reaction to this verse. There's a lot of, I have a lot of other reactions that I'm going to talk about relative to this, but this is remarkable. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Verse 4. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Here's the principle. Painful problems do not mean that God has stopped loving us. He is calling us to trust his promises more than our circumstances. Painful problems do not mean that God has stopped loving us. He is calling us to trust his promises more than our circumstances. So the ten spies come back, and they give a bad report, and they have sowed seeds of doubt into the congregation. And these seeds of doubt have grown into giants of fear. The entire nation has now turned into a nation of children. And they're crying in fear of the boogeyman, literally. As long as life is easy, they're going to follow God. No problem. But when life gets difficult, you know what they say? We would rather die. Hmm. They are so scared of the Canaanites, they would say that we'd rather die in Egypt or in the wilderness. Let's see. You are so terrified of the Canaanites who might kill you that you'd rather have preferred a guaranteed death in Egypt or in the wilderness. Really? It's an interesting diagnosis. To face the unknown requires a great deal of faith. And they are familiar with Egypt. They are somewhat familiar with the wilderness. They are unfamiliar with the land of Canaan. And they have gone on a recon mission, and they look at the size of the opposition, and they say there's no way that we can go there We would prefer death to a battle to possess this land. And it's easy to get judgmental, but the truth of it is to to face the unknown requires a great deal of faith. And many people would rather stay with what's familiar even if it's a disaster. How many of you know people that are stuck into a cycle of bad decisions? And they keep making the same bad decisions over and over and over again. And you say, you've been married five times and all five have had the same character traits. Maybe there should be some lessons learned here before you say yes to number six. I know I'm being somewhat of an exaggeration, but I've seen it happen. Some people choose to remain in the painful situation. Could be addiction. Could be abuse, God forbid. Because it's familiar. And the fear of the unknown is more painful than living with the pain of the present. You understand that? That's to some degree where Israel is. By the way, this refusal to trust God also applies to Christians. 
who refuse to trust God and so stay stuck in the wilderness. This whole narrative of numbers is not just a historical narrative about the nation of Israel. It applies to you and I. Egypt is our life before Christ, if you will. The wilderness is the journey. Canaan is the, is the, is the promises that God has made us in this life. It's the territory he wants us to take. It's the battles he wants us to fight. It's the rich blessings he wants to give us to, but it requires faith in order to follow him into the promised land. Now, Israel is saved. They've left Egypt. They left the life of slavery. They're in the wilderness, which has got its problems, but they're not willing to follow God by faith into the land, into the promised land, into the fullness of the blessings that God has given them, and that's true for Christians today. And as a result of their unwillingness to trust and obey and follow God, they stay stuck in the wilderness. They don't enjoy the world anymore because they have a new nature, but they don't enjoy the fullness of what God's given them because they're not willing to be obedient. Nothing is more miserable than a disobedient Christian who knows better and does it anyway. You just now have the conviction that you've sinned, but you're not willing to do anything about it. The next thing the nation does is almost incomprehensible. They accuse God of murderous motives. They accuse and attack the character of God. They say, God just let us hear so that he could use these Canaanites to kill us men, and then our enemies will take our wives and children as their own possession. Let's get this straight. The God who has done miracle after miracle after miracle to bring you out of Egypt, the God who has done miracle after miracle to keep you alive in the desert, only did it in order to bring you up to the edge of the promised land and then kill you off. Really? Do you understand how illogical you can become when you're controlled by fear because you refuse to believe the promises of God? They are irrational at this point, completely irrational. They are calling God evil. They are calling his good gift trash. And their solution to the problem is, instead of going forward, we're going to turn back. As a matter of fact, we need to appoint a leader and go back. Back where? Back to Egypt. Oh, what's back in Egypt? Well, number one, you've got to go through the desert to get there without any manna or the cloud, no water. You've got to get back there. Number two, you want to go back to slavery. Really? You want to go back to death by hard labor. Really? You want to go back to where all your male infants are killed at birth. Really? That was a treat? This is what fear does to people. Corrupts your logical thought process because you're not looking by faith. You're looking at by human sight. They would rather be slaves of evil men rather than children of their holy heavenly father. And this fear and folly is all based on their refusal to believe God. You and I today have the same situation. Satan is always tempting you and I every day to turn back from following Jesus, isn't he? He says, you know, following Jesus is enormously difficult. Following Jesus is, is costly. I mean, you, you've got to give up your Sunday mornings. I mean, you know, you, you could be at the lake instead of here. You could be doing this. It's true, there's a lot of things you could be doing besides being here. But you have to understand, where is eternal life? Jesus began to teach the crowds in his ministry that eternal life was found in his body and his blood. And you know what it says? Many of his disciples turned back from following him. 
And Jesus asked the 12, are you going to turn away too? And Peter said something very interesting in John 6, 68. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you stop following Jesus, you give up eternal life. If you stop following Jesus, you begin following Satan because Jesus is the only way to God and there is no other way to eternal life. Only through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're either moving toward God or you're moving away from God because you're not neutral. You're moving in a direction. Here's a basic principle. You can't get into Canaan by going back to Egypt. You can't get into Canaan by staying in the wilderness. You're going to go into Canaan, you have to move forward by faith. Now, Israel refused to trust God, and as a result, they came to some false conclusions that led to great fear and failure, and the whole principle they violated is found in Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. This nation refused to trust the Lord. They refused to believe his promise to give them the land. They were trusting their own assessment of the situation. And their own assessment was inaccurate. On Friday, Marin and I went to the coast for the day. And the traffic was ghastly. It was gridlocked. I knew that there was snow, but I hadn't checked the weather report. Rob said that was an all-time stupid decision. Correct. Both the Grapevine and Highway 58 are closed, so everybody in California was routed on the 101. Every single one. I saw all of them. <laughs> I talked to most of them. <laughs> and I didn't even put two and two together until we got home. I'm thinking, this is an awful lot of holiday traffic, right? No, my understanding of the situation was inaccurate because I didn't do my due diligence and get accurate information because we were spontaneous, right? Let's just go, right? Now, Israel's problem is not a lack of information. They've got information. They've got eyewitness accounts of the land. God had been showing them miracles for two years. They'd seen the parting of the Red Sea. However, they still said, I trust my understanding more than God's understanding. I'm going to trust my eyesight and my diagnosis more than God's. People who refuse to listen to God are saying they are smarter than God. And you know people like that, don't you? I mean, they say, well, God's not my enemy. I just don't have any time for him. Really? You must be smarter than him then if you can figure out life without him. That's what they're saying. Refusing to listen to God creates spiritual stupidity. Stupid is making decisions that are not aligned with reality. Correct? Someone who is stupid continues to make decisions that are not informed and in alignment with what is real and true. That's where this nation is. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here's the principle. When we trust and obey God, His power works through us and overcomes anything that opposes His plans. When we trust and obey God, His power works through us and overcomes anything that opposes his plans. I want you to notice something. Who do Moses and Aaron talk to? God. They fall on their faces and they talk to God. Who do Joshua and Caleb talk to? The people. So Moses and Aaron go vertical. Joshua and Caleb go horizontal. Moses and Aaron fall on their face because they've been here before. They understand that when people rebel... Who shows up? God shows up in a cloud, and judgment will follow. They understand clearly what's going to happen, and so they understand that this real problem is a spiritual rebellion against God, and the only solution is a spiritual one, and they fall on their faces, they start to pray and intercede for the people. So God doesn't wipe them out. Joshua and Caleb, a little younger, they're in their 40s. Moses and Aaron are in their 80s. Joshua and Caleb, they try and reason with the people. They try and logically persuade them. Turns out to be an exercise in utility. Joshua and Caleb, of course, tear their clothes, which in ancient times you tore your clothes as a, as a sign of extreme grief or extreme sorrow, extreme mourning. Many times at funeral services you would see this happen. And they're mourning over the people's rejection of God by, the, by his own people. And they remind the nation, Joshua and Caleb say, it's a very good land. It's worth fighting for. If God is pleased with us, God himself will bring us into the land and give it to them. And of course, what does it take to please God? Hebrews eleven six 6 says, very simple. You want to please God? Exercise faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. God is a father. God delights in giving good things to his children. Every good father is delighted when his children trust him to provide for them. Every good father is delighted when his children obey him. God had promised the land. He would be delighted for them to possess it. They're going to have to trust him. They're going to have to follow God into the land. God has already said, I'm going to go before you. My angel and my power and my presence will go before you. I will lead you into the land. I don't send you into the land. I go before you into the land. All you have to do is follow me. Is that not true for us today? There's no place that God commands you to go that he's not already there. I don't know what your situation is this week or this month. Many of you have difficult, all of us have difficult situations. But whatever situation you're in, God's already there. He's already there, and he never commands you to go someplace. He says, follow me and I will lead you there. So we're just talking about the faith to follow him and the faith to obey And they say, this land is flowing with milk and honey. This land has rich pastures. This land is covered with wildflowers. There's lots of bees to pollinate, lots of date honey. That's really what they're talking about, not bee honey, but date honey. They're currently in the wilderness. You know what wilderness is like, a desert? Have you ever seen a picture? I'll bring a picture next couple of weeks of the Sinai Peninsula. It is a Maricopa moonscape. There's nothing there. I mean, there's very little vegetation. If you're not in an oasis, it's sand and rock. You want to stay in the wilderness? 
Really? When you could go into the promised land where there's rainfall and a lush land that grows crops, why wouldn't you want to get out of the desert into the promised land? Joshua and Caleb understand that it's rebellion, and they say, stop rebelling against God and stop fearing people. Luke 12, 4, Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, fearing God is a reverential awe. It is an enormous respect that we as creatures have for our Creator, and that inspires us to obedience because we serve a holy, awesome Creator God of the universe. And when we refuse to fear God, you know what happens? We become foolish, and we start fearing people. We start fearing human opinion. We want other people's good thinking about us, and so we start behaving foolishly. We place our faith in the wrong things. I am amazed at how many Christians place their faith in powerful people, especially politicians. You know how I know this? If their candidate gets elected, they are happy because all the problems will be solved righteously because their candidate got elected. If their candidate does not get elected, then all is lost. And the world is just going to destroy itself. It's going to continue to fall apart. By the way, I'm not denigrating political process. We live in a country where we have free exercise. That is a magnificent gift. Political processes are important. Elected officials do have a God-given role to govern responsibly. We have a God-given responsibility to vote, to be involved, and to pray for them every single day. It's a tough job. I know we're cynical, but it's a tough job, and God has called them, and God will hold them accountable, and we're accountable to pray for them. But at the end of the day, people are not in control. God is in control. Psalm 146, verse 3. This is a good one to remember. Do not trust in princes. You could substitute politicians, presidents, prime ministers, and mortal men in whom there is no salvation. Humanity cannot save you. Only God can. So Israel refuses to trust God's supernatural resources, and so they're stuck with their own. Interesting. Before we do a Joshua and Caleb and try and persuade people, we should do a Moses and Aaron. First, fall on our face before God and pray for those people. Amen? Say yes. Pray first, persuade second. Don't get those out of sequence. Joshua and Caleb say their protection has been removed from them. The word protection here means shade or shadow. In the desert, if you didn't have shade, you didn't live. Shade sheltered you from the hot sun. And the Canaanites had been living proverbially under God's merciful protection for centuries. They were a very wicked group of people. I mean incredible. Child sacrifice, it's unbelievable how wicked they were. And God had given them 400 years to repent, and they'd only gotten more evil. And Joshua and Caleb says God's taking his protection, his hand of protection from them, and their time of judgment has come, and God's going to use the nation of Israel to judge them for their persistent wickedness. And here's the key. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Faith believes what God says. Since all circumstances are under God's control, 
you and I have the ability to choose faith and reject fear. Let me give you some verses. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? Here's a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who's against us? And the obvious answer is, no one. If God is for you, who's stronger than God? Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Fear is a choice. You can choose not to fear based on God's promises, and you're believing them. 1 Samuel 6, 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The implication is no one. You know, in Scripture, we have multiple examples of God accomplishing vast things through single people. God used Gideon to conquer 120,000 Midianites with 300 Israeli soldiers. God used Samson to kill 1,000 soldiers with a donkey's jawbone. God used the prophet Elijah to confront an evil king and turn an entire nation back from sin. God used Joseph to change the destinies of two entire nations. It's not our power that's going to win any spiritual, physical, mental, or social battle. It is his power. Yes? See, God doesn't need our power. You know what God needs us to do? He wants us to trust his power. Okay. Tom's going to come in a couple minutes, lead us in prayer and praise. Let's do a quick review of our key ideas, our key principles. Number one, the God of the Bible is a full disclosure God. He tells people up front what they can expect when they follow him. Number two, facts without faith in God produces fear. Faith in God creates confidence regardless of the, quote, facts. Number three, painful problems do not mean that God has stopped loving us. He is calling us to trust his promises more than our circumstances. And number four, when we trust and obey God, his power works through us and overcomes anything that opposes his plans. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Next week, Lord willing, we will pick up the backstory of this, which is the confrontation of God and the nation over their willful refusal to believe him. So please read ahead at Numbers 14. I love you all. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.